0: This is our last week um, that we are talking about generosity, and I want to start with an old story I once heard. So there was this dad who gave his son two quarters before he went to Sunday school, and he told the boy that he should give one quarter in the offering to God, and he could keep the other one to get an ice cream cone. Now, I guess the price of the ice cream cone can tip you off how old the story is, (laughs) okay? Because... You ain't getting no can come for a quarter no more. So as the boy is walking down the street, he accidentally drops one of the quarters. And it rolls into the storm drain. And it disappears. And he looks down and he, he's looking in the storm drain and he's trying to find it and he's trying to find it and he can't find it and so he stops and he slowly looks up to heaven and sighs and says, well, God, there goes your quarter. (laughs) (laughs) This very idea of giving can set off this sort of internal war in us because we are people who like to own things, okay? We like to put our name on things to remind everyone it is ours. Joel had a college roommate once who would pour his milk for his cereal and then he would take a Sharpie, this is no joke, he would take a Sharpie and he would, he would draw on the milk exactly like how far the milk was filled up. Just in case anybody tried to use a splash of his milk, he would know it. I mean, possessive, just a little possessive of that milk. But we want to own things. We want to own things because when they're ours, we get to control them. We get to decide who gets it when, where, how, how we can use it. And so this biblical concept of generosity and stewardship is boiled down really clearly through this old story that I shared. And this is the idea. God owns both the quarters. God owns both the quarters. It's all his. And where we often get tripped of is we begin to have this this mix-up in our mind that this is mine, and I'm going to give it to God when I'm ready. I'm gonna give it to God when I feel like it's the right thing. This concept of stewardship as believers is, this is the idea, we're all assigned different amounts of material things just to manage them for God. None of it's ours. It's all God's, and we get to manage it. We get the total privilege of managing it. And this is really an ultimate test for us, because we have to manage this tension between whose stuff, whose finances, whose resources are they really? Because if they're mine or if they're God's, that completely determines how I deal with them. So who really determines where our resources go? Will I really use my financial and material things exactly how God wants me to? So today I want to contrast two pictures in the scripture so we can get a better understanding of stewardship. The first is of a wealthy man in Jerusalem around the year 1000 BC who is struggling with a selfish heart. And the other is a group of believers who lived in Macedonia in 100 AD With giving hearts. So these are just two examples we're going to look at. And here's what we're going to learn today, that our attitude toward material things, our attitude toward our possessions, our attitude towards our money, is a window to the condition of our heart. It's a window to the condition of our heart. We're going to ask ourselves today this question, when it comes to my resources, is my heart selfish or is my heart giving? Is my heart selfish or is my heart giving? So let's start by looking at a man named King Solomon of Israel, who was incredibly wealthy. 1 Kings 10, 14 through 16, just gives us a blip of it. It says, "...the weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents, not including the revenues from merchants and traders from all the Arabian kings and the governors of these territories. King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield." That, that scripture goes on. I just picked out a few verses. But in case you're curious, I looked it up. 666 talents of gold is about 800,000 ounces. At today's price, uh, gold goes for about $800 an ounce. Quick math, $640 million. $640 million. And that was just yearly revenue in gold, not counting taxes and tariffs from all kinds of people and governments. So how did Solomon get so rich? How did this happen? How did he get in this position? Well, it's interesting because the scripture says it wasn't because he was an amazing businessman or, or he uh, thought of the great, great new invention that nobody ever thought about before. It says in 1 Kings 3, Solomon shows his love for the Lord He comes to the Lord, he offers sacrifices, he offers incense to honor God, and then God says to Solomon in a dream, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. And so Solomon says, I want a discerning heart to govern the people, and I want the ability to distinguish between right and wrong. And God is so happy with Solomon's request, he says, I'll do you one better, I'll give you both wealth and honor. That's what you're gonna get wealth and honor. So what I see in this scripture is as a result, King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. Solomon's riches clearly came from God. Solomon was a steward of what God gave him, just like me and just like you. He was a steward of those things. So there was something about material possessions that, we, that was never enough for Solomon. This was the problem. In 1 Kings, it tells how Solomon, he would send a fleet of trading ships to sea, And they would return with gold and ivory and riches. The scriptures say that they would bring back apes. The scripture says this, look it up. And baboons and animals from all over the world. And then people, they would come, they would come to visit Solomon. And they would bring robes and weapons and spices and horses. In fact, at one point in the scripture, Solomon accumulated 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, and it says silver as common as stones on the ground. I, I often was thinking, like, what, what could Solomon been thinking when he sent his ships out uh, year over year to get more? Like, uh, I know I have 10,000 horses, and I have 1,000 chari- chariots, but, like, sometimes it just seems like we're running a little short. So if we could just go out and get like 200 more, that would be really good. Or, um, yeah, get more apes. (laughs) Get more baboons. Throw in a chinchilla. I need a bigger zoo. You know, like what what is he thinking? It seems like Solomon had these little buttons inside his heart. Like I think we all do. One is enough and one is more. But Solomon, that more button was stuck. That more button was was stuck on. And and, you know, it's interesting. Money and horses were not all Solomon was accumulating during what seemed to be his glory days. Um, He also accumulated 700 wives, 300 concubines. Concubines. That's where it all started to really go downhill. (laughs) Let's be honest, one really good wife can be a handful. I'm not quoting anybody. I'm not quoting anybody. (laughs) I'm just saying 700 of me would certainly take a good man down. So I don't even think we can understand the idea of 1,000 women in one man's life. But Solomon, he married for political reasons and personal and selfish reasons. And the scripture says what happened was as a result, he tried to please them all. So he would build places of pagan worship. And, and indeed, the scripture says that this would happen. And it did. His heart was turned from God. And it was a downward spiral into this very, very dark place. Now, God had promised early on to bless Solomon with wealth. So I believe that when we look at the scripture, we cannot exegete out of it that being wealthy is somehow wrong. That is not what the scripture is saying. God gave Solomon all of this stuff. But somewhere along the line, Solomon crossed the line that God warned him about. When you accumulate large amounts of stuff, Somehow that enough button never gets triggered and you keep trying to satisfy yourself with more and more and more and bigger and bigger and better and more. And when that more button gets stuck, our attitudes toward our resources change. And as we mentioned, our attitude towards our resources is the window to the condition of our heart. So all of these good things that Solomon owned started crowding his perspective on stewardship. And he started to forget that both quarters belong to God. He started to forget And he started to act like all of those 12,000 horses and apes and baboons and gold was his and not God's. And his heart turned away from God. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus talks about this. Jesus addresses this situation. And he says in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Read this last line with me. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus was greatly concerned about our heart. And for some reason, our hearts, naturally attached to physical things. I don't really get it. I think it's, it's the sin nature of us. I think it's because these physical things are easy to touch and to feel and to control. If it's ours and my name's on it, I get to tell you what to do with it. it our, our heart's naturally attached to these things. But Jesus is saying, I want you to think differently about treasure. I want you to attach your heart to things that last forever. I want you to attach your heart the things that last forever. We've all heard those expressions, um, you can't take it with you, or um, you know, no hearses pull U-Hauls. right? There's nothing you can take with you after that you die. In fact, some of you may have had um, the, the grieving process of, a, of the experience of cleaning out maybe a loved one's home, or, or, um, or maybe you, you downsize later in life, and you kind of have this moment. I know I did when my grandmother passed a few months ago. I had this moment of like, wow. Really, in the end, in the end, almost all of these things we've been accumulating is deemed useless. You can't, you can't take it with you. But I think Jesus is saying something even deeper here. I want, you to, I want you to see this and go here with me. It's more than just don't be a hoarder, don't try to get stuff and keep stuff. It's more than that. He's saying in Matthew 6.20, you can't take treasure with you, but you can send it ahead of you. You can send it ahead of you. If we invest our lives in things that are eternal instead of material and financial, the treasures will be waiting for us in some sense when we get to heaven. So you can can send your luggage ahead. (laughs) By doing what you're doing here with your resources, you are in some way storing up treasures in heaven. The scripture doesn't give us too many of the ins and outs of this promise, but it does say very clearly to lay up treasures for yourselves in heaven. So we can keep some things eternally. It's just not what we can see in the natural. So Jesus' main point was to ask us, which do we want? Which do we value, earth's treasure or heavens? You get to pick, earth's treasure or heavens. I find it fascinating that to prove Jesus' point about the temporary nature of material things, most of Solomon's vast treasury, all those things that I described to you, uh, disappeared within five years of his son taking over the throne. So he spent his whole life accumulating all of that. And within five years, Rehoboam ascended the throne and the king of Egypt attacked Jerusalem and carried off the treasures of the temple and the palace, all those apes and all those baboons and all those things that he had, just like that, gone. When it comes to our resources, we have to ask ourselves, is my heart selfish? Or is it giving? So let's look at the opposite picture in the scripture than Solomon. Uh, it's in 2 Corinthians 8. There's this remarkable group of believers. In fact, um, whole churches in the first century who really understood eternal treasure. And I believe that, that they began to really understand this. And this can be a model for us today. But 2 Corinthians 8, 1-4 reads, And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. So what we're reading here is these people were begging Paul, he's the one writing this, for the privilege of giving to the poor, not the American way. Please let us give. Please, we want to help. We want to be part of the kingdom of God. Please let us give. See, Paul, he was raising funds to send back to the founding Jerusalem church, but these new churches that he was going to and he was asking for resources, they were going through really difficult circumstances, and they had, they had families that were jobless and hungry, and they were they're producing, they were in really severe trial. They were dealing with severe trials, the scripture says, but remarkably, Even in these very difficult circumstances, the Macedonian believers had overflowing joy in their giving during their time of trial. Overflowing joy in financial trials is not possible unless we have adopted an eternal treasure mindset. If you don't have anything and you give away the nothing that you have, that is only because you understand that you are sending treasures pre-approved to heaven that, that is the only way that mindset could happen. Paul, he almost uses these two pairs of words that are essentially oxymorons. Extreme poverty, they're extreme poverty, welled up in rich generosity. And it's like Paul is saying, you really can squeeze blood out of a turnip. He's saying, listen, you really can give in spite of your poverty. It wasn't intuitive to give when they had nothing. That didn't make sense, but the Holy Spirit of God and the grace that God was showing was the thing that allowed them to do that. These people who had giving hearts were compelled to give beyond their ability because they understood the joy of knowing that Jesus died for them. And he rose again. And that, that allowed them to break out of their small-mindedness and human thinking. So our attitude toward material things is a window to the condition of our heart. The Macedonians had a giving heart. So how do we know if we have a giving heart? Some of us might be able to answer that quickly. Some of us uh, think we do and we don't. <laughs> Some of us um, might think, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I have a giving heart. Well, giving is not just a byproduct of if you give money. Because actually, I think people can give money and not have a giving heart. They actually can do that. that. That's something we can, maybe it's a habit, maybe it's something we always learn, but if our heart isn't right, and so I think the way that we find out if we have a giving heart is we check areas of our life that require giving but may have nothing to do with money. All right, so pop quiz this morning. Are you ready? Pop quiz, pop quiz. Pop quiz. Oh, you guys are not cheering. All right, but here's what we're going to do. Thank you. We're going to have a pop quiz this morning. We're going to have a heart evaluation. So get get a new note out on your phone or get a piece of paper. No one's going to see these but you and God, but I really actually want you to take the quiz, okay? Come on, if this quiz popped up on your internet feed, you'd be like on it right now. So just pretend that's what's happening. All right. So number one, do you often offer to help? Your spouse or your family or your roommate with what they're working on, or are you busy all the time with your own agenda? Somebody groaned. <laughs> Just, you know, make a little note yes, no, sometimes. Two, would you skip a lunch break to help a coworker finish a project? Three They're only seven. Do you ever willingly, willingly, not grumbly, clean up after others in the break room at work, or pick up the dirty socks that your husband leaves by the recliner, or stay after church to stack the chairs? Do you ever willingly, not grumbly, look for some kind of small way to help? Four, do you say yes when, when uh, somebody asks you uh, to do a task that comes not your, interrupts your normal schedule, like when someone is moving and they need help on a Saturday morning, or someone needs a ride to the doctor, or we need help in the nursery because there isn't enough workers? Something that interrupts your normal week, something that interrupts your normal schedule. Here's number five. Have you ever loaned something you find valuable to another person? Maybe your most valuable thing. Have you ever loaned it to another person? It doesn't count if you loaned someone else's valuable thing, your valuable thing, to another person. Number six. Do you ask questions and listen to others in conversation, or do you primarily talk about your life and your stories and your needs? Okay, and here's number seven, the big one, the ultimate test. Would you willingly give up the last piece of dessert to someone else at the table? (laughs) All right, so you can calculate and tabulate your scores with Jesus. But here's the idea. A giving heart is about how you spend your time. It's about how you spend your abilities. And it's about how you spend your resources. Generosity extends beyond just our finances. It's putting others first in all areas of your life. And we need Jesus to teach us generosity on a heart level. And you know, I believe we can adopt a posture of generosity by being ready and available to God with everything we have. I want to encourage you uh, throughout your day, say, God, what do you want me to do with what I have? What do you want me to do with what I have today? Maybe, maybe midway through the day, what do you want me to do with what I have? You don't know what God will ask you to do with what you have. God, what do you want me to do with this extra hour that I have in my schedule today? What do you want me to do with this, this extra thing that I've acquired? This helps us position ourselves to be a conduit of God's grace to others and quite honestly, puts us in the right headspace to be generous. Generous. It allows us to be in this position that God truly could ask for anything that he wants, and we would give it. That we aren't saying, Lord, this is mine, and that's yours. (laughs) You you can tell me what to do with that. God, everything I have, all the quarters are yours. Now, I believe that to have a long-term, successful spiritual life, to avoid getting stuck, to avoid getting distracted or off track, you need to have a strategy And the strategy has to be deliberate. In fact, if you don't have a plan, then you're probably allowing the enemy to gain ground. And so I want to encourage you, a core piece of spiritual growth is having a generosity strategy. Generosity must be built into your spiritual strategy, however that looks. It has to be built in because it is the way that we grow spiritually. So the temptation to live selfishly with our resources will be one of our greatest challenges that we'll have to overcome to be an effective follower of Christ. This is one of the greatest spiritual disadvantages I think we have living in our country because we have a lot. We have so much. And so for us, generosity is actually, it's like a rebellious act against our culture it's saying, you know what? I, I'm not going to live in a scarcity mindset. I'm going to say yes to Jesus because I know that I'm always going to have enough. And this allows God's grace to flow freely into our lives through us and to others. And we really do have a choice. We can have a selfish heart or a giving heart. But at the end of the day, both quarters belong to God. At the end of the day, both quarters belong to God. So we're going to take our offering today. The the ushers are going to come. This is just a response to God's word, and they're going to get ready to come. I want to encourage you to have a giving heart this morning. Also, in those bags that they pass, please put in your prayer for your um, loved ones that you're praying for. We want to be part of praying uh, for you as God is chasing after their hearts. I really believe that generosity is a prerequisite for breakthrough, (laughs) That when we want something to break through in our lives, that when we are generous, God can work in and through that. That's a conduit of that. And so put in your card that you're praying for. Uh, If you're a visitor today, we'd love for you to put your card in there so we can connect with you. And we just really want to give to the Lord all that we have um, in in every way that he asks. And so let me pray for us this morning. Father God, I thank you uh, for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word is is so true. And God, even internally, sometimes we war against this feeling of wanting to have and to own and control. But we just pray that you would help us surrender. God, that we would remember that we are just a steward of the resources that you have given us, and God, we are thankful for those resources. And so we pray that throughout our day, uh, throughout our weeks, Lord, if you mention to us, hey, um, you should use those airline extra points to gift to somebody else, or or you should should give a little bit more to this person, or that person's struggling and they need a meal, or or take an extra time and go visit someone, God, that we would be generous with our time, our resources, our words, Lord God, that we'd be generous for everything. Everything that we have, because it's all yours. God, we're trusting you. We love you. And we just give you praise this morning. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Watch this video that recaps the series as we take the offering.
1: Imagine your friend invites you to a party. You arrive, and there's lots of people, decorations, food, and drink. There's enough for everyone. When you're hosted by someone that generous, you don't have to worry about your needs. You can just enjoy yourself and focus on the people around you. Yeah, that's what a good host wants for her guests. And this is the picture of the world that we find in the Bible. Creation is an expression of God's generous love. He's the host and humans are his guests in a world of opportunity and abundance. And we're called to keep the party going, to spread his goodness. This is a beautiful picture. but. It's not the way people experience the world. Rather, we find a world of scarcity and struggle, not abundance. And Jesus grew up in that kind of world, under military occupation, people losing their land or families to debt and poverty. And yet, he would say things like this. Look at the birds. They don't store up food for themselves, yet they have enough. Or consider the wildflowers. They're beautiful and abundant, and they don't stress about their existence. And you all should live that way too. But surely Jesus knew that things don't always work out. I mean, sometimes there really isn't enough. And Jesus did experience poverty firsthand, but he viewed the world through the story of the Hebrew scriptures, which claimed that our scarcity problem isn't caused by a lack of resources. Rather, the problem is our mindset that God can't be trusted. Maybe God's holding out on me. Maybe there isn't enough, and maybe I need to take matters into my own hands. And once we're deceived into that mindset of scarcity, we can justify the impulse to take care of me and mine before anyone else. And that leads to envy, anger, violence, and a world where it seems like there's not enough. The party's over. It's turned into a battleground. But God wants humans to experience his generosity. And so he chooses one people, the family of Abraham. And he promises to give them the abundance that he wants for everybody else. God will provide what they need, All they have to do is trust his generosity. And through them, the whole world will see how generous the host really is. But that's not what happens. Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, enter a land of abundance and they promptly forget the host who gave it to them. They act like it's all theirs and like there's not enough. And it leads to war and Israel's self-destruction. If I were the host of this party, I think I'd just give up. But God doesn't give up. What he does is surprising. He gives another gift. Another gift? Yeah, but this gift is different. What God gives is himself. All right, and Jesus, the host himself, comes to join in on the spoil party. And notice, Jesus lives with the conviction that there is enough and that our generous host can be trusted. His mindset of abundance allowed him to live sacrificially and generously even towards his enemies. And Jesus called his followers to trust in God's abundance like him. And that's why he said things like sell your possessions and give to the poor or don't worry about your life. He's inviting us to live by a different story, one that is built on trust in God's goodness and love. But living generously doesn't mean life is going to go well. I mean, look at Jesus. He was betrayed by his friends and he suffered. And this was no surprise to Jesus. He knew that people would take advantage of his generosity. In fact, that was his plan. Really? Yeah, think about it. Jesus knows that we're all hopelessly deceived by this lie that there's not enough. Yeah, that lie needs to be defeated. And so that's what Jesus was doing when he gave us the gift of his life. Jesus' death was the ultimate expression of God's generous love. Yeah, God's love can turn death into life and scarcity back into abundance or as the apostle paul put it you know the gift of our lord jesus the messiah that even though he was rich for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich and jesus called his followers to live like the real party has begun yes he called it the kingdom of god and our invitation to this party is yet another gift. The personal presence of God's own spirit that can teach us how to trust the generosity of the host just like Jesus did. Now when you believe there's enough, you start seeing opportunities for generosity everywhere. With our time and money, our attention. Yes, one of the most important ways that we can experience the abundance of God's new creation is sharing with others because of our trust that God is the generous host.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming to church today. We'll see you next Sunday, and have a great week. Greet someone on your way out.